So what I'll talk to you today about is really the neuroscience that I've been doing over the 20 years with many great collaborators. Um, and it's really a story that, that sort of takes its beginning a long time ago. But before we get into the sort of the, the history of it, I thought I'd just share, share a video with you that sort of encapsulates that I think what is both pleasurable but also deeply meaningful. Hi girls, it's August 6th, is that right? Yeah. August 6th, 2012. Daddy's gonna play them a little song while you're eating their peas. You guys ready? Why are they so cute? Why is it that, you know, they're moving in time together? It sort of points to many of the things that I think we find pleasurable, but it, I think foremost also points to the sociality, the sort of the idea that a lot of the things we find pleasurable is really being with other people. And of course, it's the one thing that the pandemic has more or less deprived us of. But I let's just, let's just think about what is going on in our brains as we go through this. So today I'm going to talk first about emotion because that's really where everything starts, I think. Talk about how we could reverse engineer the human brain. Talk about how it is that within those emotions we have pleasure and pleasure cycles, which are, of course, largely built for survival. I'll talk about how one can look at that on a computer built computational models and actually get a handle on how it is that we switches through these different parts of the cycle and even brain states. And think about how that might relate to consciousness, think about how that in fact might relate to human flourishing. So let's get started with that. So many, many years ago, I came to Oxford to do my doctorate um, on emotion. And I wrote this thesis, as you can see here, called the functional neuroanatomy of emotion. And I think it was because I came to realize that really if one wanted to understand how the human brain worked, one really has to understand how it is that we solve really difficult questions, really difficult problems in the world and how we use emotions to guide our behavior. I've sort of stayed in that field. Some years ago, I wrote a textbook on the, on the matter. But one of the things I came to realize as I'll show you in this talk is that emotion is this sort of multifaceted molecule and yet it consists of these atoms and those are really the pleasures and the pains and those are the ones that one could try to understand in order to understand what it is that is going on when we have emotions and when we act in the world. So what are emotions? Here are just a random selection of different people having emotions and you Im immediately recognize that these are emotions and that you can probably recognize what the emotions are as well. The one thing of course which is important about emotions is that we have them on different timescales. We have the immediate expressions that I just showed you, which are usually having autonomic changes at the same time. One gets nervous, one starts to sweat, all of those kind of things. And then we can report on those over minutes and hours, which then turns into moods, perhaps even disorders, and certainly personality traits. So there's a timescale to it that can last essentially a lifetime. But how does one define them? As always, one can go back to the Greeks and one can 
read what Plato wrote, sort of uh, talking in say, having Socrates say pleasure, uh, so emotions are the pleasures and the pain, pains of the soul. Aristotle was slightly more sort of elaborate. He said that emotions are all those feelings that so change men as to affect their judgments and that are also attended by pain and pleasure. So already then they had the idea that pain and pleasure must be important. Of course, what then happened was that, uh, you know, the centuries passed, the millennia went over us and people like Darwin decided that he could perhaps think about how this might work in other animals. And he said that the emotions were really expressive behaviors that communicate information from one animal to another about what is likely to happen and emotions therefore affect the chances of survival of the individual demonstrating the behavior. So there's a key, key word here, namely the survival. And this of course is one of the things that emotion and specifically pleasure and pleasure cycles are good for. But having said that, of course, along came cognitive neuroscience and Liza Feldman Barrett has been a, a very vocal proponent of trying to really sort of parcel out what is going on. And she, she holds that emotions are constructed events that arise from the simultaneous combination of three or more basic psychological primitives, core affect, categorization, and executive attention. Now, the key thing here is that the core affect is really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about pleasure and pain. Um, it's also clear, as I already alluded to, that when these systems are not no longer working particularly well, we get the burden of mental disease. And as you know, this is a quite a large burden, of course, not getting better by the pandemic, where we're not able to actually enjoy the things we normally enjoy. Now, when people then started thinking about what might be going on in the brain, which of course is what my talk is about today, they happened upon the structures which are sort of in the middle of the brain, in, on the midline in structures that are really what we call the limbic brain, the limbic really just being meaning wall. And there was a number of theories out there. McLean held that there was something about the, the primitive brain, which of course doesn't really hold up, but that was his idea. But Papes was really the first one in 1949 to highlight this. And since then, there's been great strides making. Joe Ledoux um, has made a career out of telling us what the amygdala, studying what the amygdala is doing. And he's done some remarkable studies in rats showing that the amygdala is very important for fear conditioning. In fact, he was so successful that for years, people thought that the amygdala really was the fear center. Now, we know that that is not true. And we also know that the amygdala probably has been superseded by the prefrontal cortex in, in humans. After all, it's been about 100 million years since we shared a common ancestor with, with the rodents. And in fact, um, Antonio Damasio wrote this seminal book called Descartes' Era from 1994, where he was claiming based amongst other things amongst his patient, but also on this particular patient, which was not his patient, but was Phineas Gage, who was a, a railway engineer who basically had the job of making controlled explosions. And one day he forgot to put the sand in and this tampering rod went straight through his prefrontal cortex. And amazingly, he survived. And they found the tampering rod about 150 meters from there and it can now be found in Harvard. But the key thing is what he changed. Phineas was no longer Phineas Gage. We don't know a lot about this, but the measure was right to say that the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, so the orbital frontal cortex, which is over the eyeballs and the middle part here, does seem to play a huge part in having emotions, reasons, and so on. But what he conveniently forgets to say is that this is not a new idea. James Lang, of course, one could say that that really is setting the scene. 
And Wallen Nauter, this amazing neurologist, wrote a fantastic paper from 71 called The Problem of the Frontal Lobe and a Reinterpretation, which is really about linking the body with the brain. And so along came the, the revolution of neuroimaging, which is, of course, one of the things I've been part of. And with that revolution, of course, also came the neurophrenology of neuroimaging. So here's just a meta-analysis from 2002, where they looked at all the studies and they tried to classify the different, different emotions and see where you get blobs. And as you can see, there are blobs all over the brain. What does that mean? Does that mean that one probably shouldn't think about localizing it? Is it so that you can't have a one-to-one -one mapping where you say amygdala is fear, orbital frontal cortex is something else? Or should we really be starting to think about networks? Should we really be starting to think about how it is that we have these overlapping networks and really look at the complexity and the dynamics of this over these timescales that I've been talking about? I certainly think that is the way it should happen. And so there I was as I started my doctorate back in 98, coming from computer science and wanting to try to understand how the human brain worked. I came across this beautiful data that suggested that really we are prediction machines. Here is an image of essentially black and white, and most of you won't be able to recognize it. And yet, the moment I've shown you my two daughters playing in the, in the sun, you can't help but see this because now you have a template. Now you have something that you can predict from. And this is true in the visual domain, but it's also equally true in the auditory domain. Here is what happens when you have a child with a cochlear implant, which is basically a way of making that child being able to hear. And the way that happens is basically by downsampling the signal. So give me, let me give you an example of something that is being said, and let's see whether you can try to understand what is being said. It's very difficult. For most of you, it will sound like complete noise. And yet, if I play you the raw signal, so what we hear, we don't have a cochlear implant when it's not downsampled, we get this. The wife helped her husband. And now listen to the downsample version again. And you can immediately hear exactly what is going on. So in other words, your brain, now it has a template, is able to predict and to work out what it is, what is the signal in that noise. And so in many ways, as a computer scientist, I've realized that really evolution has built survival machines. At the end of the day, what is important is that we survive not just as individual, but also as a species. And really what happens here is that we've built a system that has hierarchical prediction. Other people have had this idea. Carl Friston, of course, is a key proponent and Clark is another one. And really what this buys us, this idea that we have predictions and that we have these emotions that helps guide those predictions is that we can solve what is known as NP-hard problems, non-polynomial problems, problems that are so hard that most computers can't fix them. And so it means that in order to really reverse engineer the brain, we need to understand this system and we need to understand it over time. We need to understand the long lasting kind of cycles that I've talked about, but also the very short ones. So I didn't have my coffee just before now. And of course, I'm thinking about coffee. So there's a pleasure cycle here, as we'll see in a moment. But also, if we understood how that worked, we also much more likely to be able to understand what happens when there are imbalances. Anhedonia, the lack of pleasure, apathy, the lack of wanting things are fundamentally changed in most neuropsychiatric disorders. And really, a better understanding might be able to give us a better understanding of how we could intervene. And so 
I think that's all well and good. But of course, the key issue, how is the brain organized to start with? And again, people have been thinking about this for a long time. One of my favorite examples is, is Marcel Meshulam's 1998 paper in Brain, where he basically shows that there's a hierarchy of things that the primary visual uh, cortex, V1, sends signal on to higher and higher levels. And they're up and downstream connections between these things. And the key thing is that they're organized so that as you get higher and higher up, you get more and more integrative. And here he's just showing what happens the same for the auditory system. And he's showing what happens when you then integrate that, when you integrate that model. And in fact, Bernard Bars had the wonderful idea that he said, really what is going on here is that you have all of this information coming into a global workspace. And basically then that information is broadcast to the rest of the world. Now, we'll get back to the global workspace because I think that's a key idea here. Norman and Chalice, of course, immediately said, you know, in their theories that it's really about how it is that we bring all of these things together in a, in a, in a, in a system that is able to actually do these things with scheduling and so on. So um, just as an aside, because this is also, I think, what is important when one does this kind of work, when we did the first experiments of just looking at what happens when you just get the different kind of five senses into your brain, the nose, of course, there are more than five senses, but just the classical ones, the, the auditory, the visual, the somatosensory, the smell and the taste. What happens then is we were able to make sculptures of those. So just basically the lowest part of the hierarchy. And here's just a close-up of one of those with my good friend, Danny Catro. So in other words, we basically were able to show what are the parts that are involved in this, the outer ring. But the key thing, of course, if one wants to understand the system and reverse engineers understand what happens in the middle in this global workspace. And Jean-Pierre Jeanjeu and Stan Dehen came up with an influential implementation of Bar's ideas, namely to say that really when we're doing things, we have things coming in, perceptual systems, we have the past, we have the evaluative system, which is the emotional system, and then we have an attentional system, and that basically predicates and allows us to basically look at the future. And they also did a number of beautiful experiments that allowed us then to say that really if one shows things at subliminal strength, it's not able to get in and therefore you're not conscious of it. And you can even see things that you're not conscious of, like if there was a gorilla walking through the room and I'm focused on talking to you, I may not be able to see it. I could have attentional blindness to that. So that's kind of interesting. But in order to get to there, we need to first think about the reward system. And the story of pleasure cycle is, I think, an exciting one. As I said, you know, right now I'm, I'm wanting coffee. I'm thinking about coffee. I'm thinking about how I could potentially run out and come back and then finally have a bit of pleasure. Food, of course, it happens in the beginning for other pleasures is a bit later. And then there will be a phase transition once I've had that and I've enjoyed that and I'm able to do something else. Now, if I was addicted to coffee, which of course I'm not, I would spend all my time here and probably wouldn't spend very much time here or here. So in other words, you could see how it is if you could identify what is what are the circuits that are doing this that could basically see whether one could find out what is going on and how potentially to help you not get stuck in those attractors. So in other words, you can have prediction and meter-stable cycles and networks. You need this in order to have the resource allocation for survival, but we are also limited. We have a limited bandwidth in the inner circle, as it were. But key to this is that these rewards are motivational magnets, just like those two babies you saw in the beginning. You can't help but actually look at them, even if you haven't had children yet. 
And really, the pleasure cycles are essential for the necessary decision making. And so to think about that, together with Christine Arendt, we started thinking about how it is that you have in this state, when I'm sitting here thinking about the coffee, you have all these experiences, all of these things coming in, perhaps even the smell of coffee, and you have to make predictions about what you need to do in order to get to that goal. And so in a very kind of a very kind of simple way, one could start to think about how it is that you have this search tree of different possibilities and really the reward values and your past experience allows you to discard suboptimal options. And this just doesn't happen now. It happens throughout the day. Here are only three coffees, but you know, it could be many more. And of course, there could be many different kinds of cycles. There could be things that I'm doing as well. And as long as I'm engaged in that cycle, that of course could and will very highly influence the well-being that I have over the lifespan. So in my work, I've looked at probably all of the pleasures that there are. Here I'm just showing you four, food on the top, and what you and social on the right, drugs, methamphetamine given to drug naive Oxford undergraduates, and gambling, again, gambling naive Oxford undergraduates. And when we use these scanners, what we found is that the orbital frontal cortex, so the part that you saw with the measure, but that I'm also, um, that clearly is coming out here, the, the, the parts of the brain that are just over the orbits, the eyeballs, is really the engaged version. And of course, with subcortical regions, as you can see here, when it comes to the drugs, but also for the other one, although it's not showing. But I think key here is that it's one system. For all of these things, it seems to focus on one system. And that one system includes, but is not limited to the orbital frontal cortex. And much of my career has really been spent trying to try to find out what the orbital frontal cortex, where things are, when things happen, and what is going on. And one of the few pleasures that I couldn't do myself, I had to bring in a Dutch collaborator, Yannick Ogiogiadis, who sort of masters and Johnson's rolled into one. And he did this beautiful study where he looked at what happens when when women fake orgasms and when they have orgasms. And what he found was that when they have real orgasms, as you can see, you get a very large engagement of the orbital frontal cortex compared to when you are just imitating, which is not surprising given that the pleasure circuit, of course, has to engage the very same one that you use for so many other things. Of course, it's a bit frivolous to talk about orgasms here on a, on a Thursday afternoon, but really, I think what is exciting here is really the kind of orchestration of, of, of activity, how it is that one goes from desire and how different regions are active when you are aroused, when you get to the plateau phase, and even when you get to the orgasm phase. So this kind of orchestration, this kind of choreography of different brain regions changing is really what we're trying to understand when we're understanding pleasure, not just on a single level, but on a whole brain level. And of course, it's very similar if one was to look at music. So in beautiful work by Anne Blood and Robert Satora from, from uh, McGill, they were able to show that when you have the kind of music that where your hair stands on end, you get a very similar kind of network engaged. Now, they weren't able to say anything about the when, because this was a pet study, but they were very much able to show that it's the same network that is engaged when it comes to these kind of pleasures. So that's kind of exciting. It's one of the things that we do in the center in Aarhus at the music in the brain center where we have all kinds of fancy machines, but also extraordinarily gifted musicians, including our director, Peter Wust, who is here playing the bass. Um, and as you can see, we've grown and we will continue to grow because we've been extended for another five years. So again, 
if music is your pleasure, you should definitely talk to me afterwards. Um, but before we sort of look at the commonality of things, let's maybe just focus on the social pleasures and then we focus on perhaps what is the most simple, even though social pleasures are never simple, but the most simple of all of the pleasures, namely that where we like I babies. Like I mean, look at these babies, for instance. <laughs> It just goes on and on. So why are they so cute? Why do they look so cute? And why is it that when we hear them, they're so cute? Well, it's very clear that we must be motivated to do something about them because of course the species survives. The survival of the species depends on it. They're vulnerable, they come out too early. So we need to take care of them. And if there's something wrong with the parent, if postnatal depression, that of course is a problem that potentially could need some help. But also if there's something wrong with the baby like a cleft lip, so the template doesn't fit the kind of expectations we have of what babies are. So I got very excited by this back in the early 2000s, and we started using this kind of scanner, which is an MEG scanner, what some people call an advanced hair dryer. But what is cool about it is that it tells you something about the when. It tells you something about how things happen over milliseconds, because unlike BOLD, so that is fMRI, it tells you basically how these different things are moving about on a millisecond, so at the thousands of a second around the brain. And I was interested to look at the Coronel Lorentz idea of the, of the Kinchin schema, the idea that there's something special about babies. And so we took happy babies, uh, no neutral babies and sad babies and matched them to some adults. And then we started looking at what happened in the brain. And at that time, everybody thought that it would just get activity in the fusiform face area, which is the part of the brain that Oliver Sacks described when he talked about the man who mistook his wife for a hat, because if, that part of the brain is no longer functioning, you're unable to recognize faces. Now, you get that, as you can see here, after about 130 milliseconds, both for the adults and for the babies, but only for the babies do you get this activity in the emotional part of the brain very quickly, and then it sort of dies out. So in other words, it looks as if what is very special about babies is that they, at the same time as you recognize them as being babies, you get this signal that says, oh, I must be taking care of that baby. And we were able in later work, um, again, with Christine Parsons and, and Katie Young and with Louise Stark to show, and with Alan Stein, of course, to show that there's something very special about if there's something wrong with the template. If there's just a tiny change in the mouth, we notice immediately. And interestingly, when you look at the brains of, again, non-parents having a look at this, what you find is that there's a much diminished response in the orbital frontal cortex. And also, by the way, in the fusiform face areas. So in other words, this prediction goes awry. And this, of course, could be a problem. And unless one does something about it, one could then later have problem with the bonding process. But of course, now that we know, we can start to think about how we could intervene in that. And in fact, in a set of studies that we are conducting, we've shown that at least the way that nurses and surgeons report on these babies is that they say, can't you see how cute that baby is? Because they've changed their template. And how do we change the template so that we can engage in a natural way? So I think that's exciting, but it's also exciting to see that again, if we look at the auditory domain here, just looking at comparing infant and adult crying, only the infant crying gets you activity in the orbital frontal cortex. Again, telling us that this early, early response that is guiding our things is really found here. And it's found in people who are not yet parents. 
And so in fact, for the last five years in another project, I've been investigating, funded by the ESC, what happens as we become parents? What happens if we scan people before we want to have children, after we've had the child, and then a year later, and both the mother and the father? So again, we haven't published on this yet, but it does look as if there are very significant changes in the brain when you become a parent. And all of us who are parents will know that this is true for many different ways, but there are clearly changes in your brain, clearly changes in your hedonic system. So together with Roger Crisp, I, we, we sort of investigated all of this and we basically wrote this paper where we state that by revisiting this conundrum in philosophy about high and low pressure, pleasures, and we concluded based on this kind of research and the research of all the people in the field that really it seems to be like in Lord of the Rings, it's one ring to rule them all. There is a network that is engaged that is similar no matter what kind of pleasure it is. There's of course a, an interesting question and that is why does it feel different? Um, but it's the same system and that system here we show in the rat because one can study pleasure in the rat as Ken Barrich from University of Michigan has shown beautifully by giving rats a little bit of sugar water and, and basically measuring how many times they lick their lips, which of course you can also do in babies who can't report on it. But when you do that, you find this circuitry and you see the orbital frontal cortex, but you also see other regions like the nucleus accumbens and ventral pallidum that are part of this network, this kind of workspace that basically allows us to feel pleasure. And if something happens to that, and of course in rats, they've tried that. If you take out the ventral pallidum, the rat is never able to show that pleasure reaction again. And here we try to extrapolate it in the human brain. And again, what you can see is that a lot of these regions are fairly deep in the brain and fairly well protected, which of course is well, because otherwise it'd be very difficult to survive. So in other words, and what we're really talking about here is going back to Aristotle's radical idea that there's a difference between hedonia, this idea of heat as sweet taste of honey as pleasure, which is essential for food, for survival, whether it be it for food for the individual, being for sex, or actually being able to propagate the species, and of course the social aspects. And then eudaimonia, namely the life well lived, embedded in meaningful values together with a sense of engagement. It's subtle and complex and what we can say, though, is that the lack of, of well-being in mental health can be devastating. But what we also know is that it's very difficult to measure. It's very difficult to find somebody. And like a rare butterfly, how do we find somebody who is actually flourishing in a brain scanner? I think it is possible to do that. And we'll talk a little bit about how that might be possible through music, through social, through uh, psychedelics and, and through meditation. But in order to be able to do that, one needs one more ingredients. And over the last, again, almost 20 years, I've worked with this wonderful man, Gustavo Deco from Barcelona, to try to see whether we can't actually simulate the human brain on a computer. And as you can see from this neuron paper, we have great expectations that by doing so, we are able to take the data of normal and of people with disease and try to see whether we can characterize that on the computer model and then treat that computer model just like we would treat an experimental animal. But unlike with an experimental animal, we can basically we can subject this model to extensive research over months and even years to find out how do we rebalance that. In order to do that though, I have to bore you with some really exciting science, which is what it's called complex networks dynamics. And at the top, you see a sort of a video of a larval separate fish. And you see from time to time that you get this kind of burst of activity. 
it means that the brain is critical as has been shown and it means that really in order to understand that we need some of the tools that have been been basically been built in physics and mathematics and one of the first tools is really to take thomas aquinas equip um sort of uh, talking in Aristotelian manners, he said, quid quid recibitor and modum recipientis recibitor. The content is shaped by the container. So what we do is we take the, the, the wiring of the brain, the tractography as is known that we can pull out of the living brain. We pass of the brain to make the, the problem a little bit less rather than doing it on all the billions of neurons. We're doing it on large brain areas that seems to be doing the same thing. And then we try to build a model that can fit the data that we get either from fMRI or from MEG, or from anything really, as long as it's whole brain. Because again, it's important that we're not just modeling a small part of the brain, but that we are modeling the whole dynamics of this. And just to give you a flavor, and it can only be a flavor, but of course, for those of you interested, we should talk much more about this. But really, we need a term in our models that describes the intrinsic dynamics of the mass. We need something that describes the coupling. And as you can see here, the yellow is not directly connected to the green. And so really it needs to go through the red. And of course that can happen once you have a dynamic model. Here are some equations, don't worry too much about them, but just to show that there are many different ways that one can describe these neural masses and they have various pros and cons, all of them. But the one that we like the most is really this one, the Hoff bifurcation model, which is a Stuart Landau model, which is a beautiful way of actually capturing a lot of information that is being encoded in the human brain. And in order to do that, we can then perform perturbative studies of the brain not just as here in the beautiful studies of Marcel Massimini, where he's trying to show what happens when you give TMS on the outside, or when you're using deep brain stimulations, as I'll show you in a moment, to stimulate deep in the brain. By doing this, we can actually find out what are the mechanisms that are causing those changes. So in other words, we can take the healthy brain, look at the healthy working network, we can take the disease brain, and we can try to stimulate and see whether we can form what we call homostatic recovery of turning that disease brain or that different brain state into a healthy one. So in order to do that, we got quite excited and this is work with Angus Stevner, um, who was a, now, now a postdoc, but was a PhD student with me, um, who was able to show that what happens when you fall asleep. And basically one can train a network to find out what are the states that happens when you fall asleep. And classically in, in, uh, in medicine, it's been said that there's awake, then there's in one, then there's in two, and then there's slow wave sleep or deep sleep. But what you can see that this unguided algorithm was showing us is that there are many more states. And in fact, Angus was able to show that as you fall deeper and deeper into sleep, you have a change and each of these represent the brain network. And you can see how much time is being spent when you're awake. So a lot of in state 10, which of course is a set of brain regions, that I'm not showing you here, but that you can find in the paper that basically is then phase transitioning and finally getting to N3. Now, thinking about this in a more reductive manner, could one find a way of stimulating the brain so that you can go from deep sleep all the way up here to force this transition that I showed you earlier by having a computer model of the deep sleep and of the awake and see whether you can force it one way or the other way. And so we were able to do this recently in a paper that came out in PNAS, where we basically were able to model the data and find out by trial and error and exhaustive search where to stimulate in order to force the model from one way to another. Here's just some data to snow you with. 
Here's what the data looks like from the empirical data. This is what the model looks like for when you're awake. This is what happens when you are deep sleep. And this is what the model looks like. And this is basically the regions that are involved in it. Now we then stimulated each one of them. And as you can see, as you stimulate this model, you find that there, when it comes from sleep to awake, there are lots of places that you can stimulate in order to wake the brain up by synchronizing. If you noise it, however, there's no way that you can do it. On the other hand, it's much, much harder, as you can see on the scale here, to wake, to take the awake brain and fall asleep. And this, of course, fits really nicely with what we feel as well. This is like a toy example. This is not something that is clinically relevant yet, but it shows in principle that we can do these things. And I think that's very exciting because it means that we can now take these networks from people with disease and think about how it is that we could use these models to force them into a normal state. But rather than doing it just brute force, we could go back to this idea of the hierarchy. And we worked very, very hard, Gustavo and I, to basically work out how we could find out what the hierarchy of the brain is. And we developed a method called normalized direct transfer entropy that allows us to take any time series and basically find out whether it's forcing another time series or it's being caused by another time series. And if you do that, you can basically establish from this matrix of all these different brain regions, you can establish the hierarchy and you can establish the regions in the brain that get a lot of information in and basically keep that information to themselves until they broadcast it to the rest of the brain. And you can do that not just when you're resting, but when you're doing many different tasks. And in this case, in a thousand people, we had seven tasks. So we look at what is common to all of them. And then, although I won't show you here, but you can read it in the paper, we create a model where like a multi-hydra, multi-headed hydra, we cut out these regions. And when we do that, we're able to show that if we cut out the ones that we've identified that are now in the global workspace, the whole system breaks down. If we only take out a few ones of them, the system is still able to recover, which is good. And, but of course, it also means we can then think about how can we then make the system rebalanced. So when you do that, you find that, again, these are the regions that are in the visual cortex, the somatocentric cortex. Those are the ones that just put a lot information forward. So they're the lowest part of the hierarchy. By the intricative part, and this is the brain sort of seen from above, just like one would see a map, are basically the regions that are on the midline the ones that are to do with emotions and with attention and so on. And I'm just showing you this other slide just to see that if one changes the parcellation, you get very similar results. But the money shot, if you like, is this. What you find when you look at all these seven tasks and the resting is that you get this network of regions. These regions that are really to do with perceptual systems, they're really to do with long-term memories, places like the hippocampus. They're to do with evaluative, the amygdala is in there, the the, um, the uh, nucleus accumbens, the right igmus is singular and so on. So there are regions here that really, in many ways, substantiate the, the idea and the theory that, that Jean-Pierre -Jean -Jean Jean-Jeu and Stan de Hen and, and Bernard Bass came up with. So for the first time ever, I think we've identified what are the regions. And of course, if one then wants to change the state from one state to another, rather than trying to stimulate everywhere, like in the visual cortex, when we know that the visual cortex is not really something that necessarily changes anything, we could then start with the top of the hierarchy, the parts of the brain, the, the hierarchy of elders that basically are making the decisions and making the transitions. 
So I think that's potentially very interesting. And of course, it fits very nicely with the kind of work that I've done with TPOCs, where we've tried to work out what happens when you are giving people deep brain stimulation. We do this on a routine basis based on TPO's great discovery. They mean that if you stimulate a place like this subthalamic nucleus in people with Parkinson's, you can basically quell the tremor. Or as Tipo has always shown here, he's, you see him with, with somebody you might know, is that if you stimulate for somewhere where you have chronic debilitating pain, namely in a phantom limb, so in a hand that is no longer there, if one stimulates the pericoductal gray at 20 hertz, you can make that pain go away completely. Now, interestingly, and we do this on table in these patients, when you do this and you then stimulate them and you listen to what they tell you, if you stimulate at 90 hertz in exactly the same place, the pain, the pain becomes even worse than before, suggesting, as we've already guessed, that pain and pleasure are really two sides of the same coin. And if you then put them in a scanner and you turn the stimulator on and off, what you find is that the orbital frontal cortex seems to be very much active when you get the pain relief or the pleasure of moving from one state to another. And so again with Annie, when I told her about this, she couldn't help herself but say, we've got to build, we've got to build some sculptures of this. And we made this wonderful sculpture where we were able to basically track where this point that we're stimulating, where this bifurcating point that either give you pain or pleasure, where that projects in the rest of the brain. And it's, a, I think, a beautiful kind of thing, a sort of a pain and pleasure made flesh. But of course, the brain is a large place. And I just wanted to give you a sense of what can be accomplished if one is actually stimulating. And this is for, for um, basically to try to, uh, to do cingulum stimulation. And this is a beautiful study where they stimulate in different parts of the cingulate. Remember the cingulate is just a part over your, over the sort of where you can see here in the midbrain, if you stop your fingers all the way sort of four or five centimeters in, and you can see that there is a certain place and I'll now just play you a video where they get some very interesting results. If I can do it, yes, here we go. <coughs> And so I, I encourage you to go and actually have a look at this. So, but it appears that they found a place in the brain where involuntarily the patient can't help but feel good. So I think one of the things we could take in discussion is just think about whether this, there really are such pleasure electrodes where you are perturbing the system 
in this case, of course, is an anxiolytic patient, and you're forcing that patient to basically go to a place just like with the with the um, with the hand with the chronic pain. You're going into a, a good place, as it were. But again, let's talk about what that actually might mean, both in terms of the neuroscience, but also very much in terms of say, the of the ethics. So, is it true then that this target state that we're going for? And remember, there was a target state when I showed you how you go from deep sleep to awake. Could there be a target state where really one really is eudaimonic, where everything is, is good? So one could study that with many different ways. One could study it with meditation, and we sort of got some beautiful meditation data, and we're collecting some more looking at jhanas. Um, this is work with Shamil Shandaria. Um, and also the psychedelics we work with Robin Carthard Harris and various other people, Matt Johnson, and music, of course. These are states where reliably we can seem to induce something that people describe, at least afterwards, as a very meaningful state. And so let me just give you the example of psychedelics. Here's the work of Celine Assessor, who is this wonderful researcher that I worked with for many years, who's come up with an alphabet, if you like of the sort of the harmonics, the harmonic functions of the brain. This is a beautiful paper from 2016 that basically gives you an alphabet of which you can then spell all the different states that one has. And we call this functional harmonics. And basically it's a framework that allows us to take these basic harmonics and then find out how it is that in different states, they spell out different kinds of frequency spectrums. And if we then take Robin's NSD data, with music, without music, we can see that there is a change in the energy spectrum when we look at LSD compared to placebo. And you can see there's a very significant difference. There's also a difference in the criticality in the power law exponents, but there's also a difference in the way that the repertoire is being expressed. It looks like that LSD basically increases the repertoire. It, it looks like it's the brain suddenly is able to explore much more of that landscape that it would go through normally. And it's true, not just for LSD, but also for psychedelics like psilocybin. Very similar results as you can see for, for psychedelics, or psilocybin rather. So that's kind of exciting. But of course, what is really exciting, and this is work by one of my students, Jakob Voroshek, again, working on Robin Stacer, where Robin gave uh, psychedelics to depressed patients and he was able to show that in some of these responders, they got much better, at least very, very early on. And then after a while, it faded. But if you read the Lancet Psychiatry, the effects are very strong. Now, he also had neuroimaging of it. And what we're doing here is we're trying to see what happens when you have and you use these computational models that we have. And you can start to think about how it is that we could look at the non-responders and find out what it is about the brain response that is different from the responders and see whether we could force at least the computer model to actually give us that kind of response. So this is an ongoing and really exciting area of research. And I think it has huge potential for actually being able to really help with things like depression and really understand the mechanisms by which these serotonergic drugs are working. So I think this is potentially exciting and I think something we can talk about as well. And I think really that's about as much as I wanted to say um, I wanted to say also that it's not just about the brain, it's about empathy, it's about other people. For those of you who don't know about it, you should go to my friend Roman Kasnarik, who's standing here with a pair of shoes and try to see how one can, in fact, doesn't really need just to have electrodes put in your brain, but even listening to a story and walking a mile in somebody's shoes can really change you. 
I think that's potentially something else. And I think it also points to something that I'm very keen on, namely to say that this is really a multidisciplinary endeavor. What I've shown you today is just some of the neuroscience, some of a selected bunch of neuroscience that I've done over the last 20 years. But it's by no means the full story. Really what is going on here is that one needs to look at this from many different angles. And with this in mind, one of the things that will be happening over the next year or so is that we are setting up a new center, a center for eudaimonia and human flourishing, which we'll be working closely with the Uhiro Center to try to see whether we can't bring these multitudes of perspectives together and try to see whether we can't finally catch that butterfly or at least part of that beautiful rare butterfly, which is well-being or flourishing and see whether we can't characterize it both in terms of what happens in the brain, how it feels and how we might be able to rebalance it. So thank you so much. I'll leave you with this image of my, my wonderful lab and some of my collaborators. Um, I should point out uh, Peter Boost, Alan Stein, Kent Berridge and Peter Weibrow at the top, but of course also Gustavo Deco who's standing in there in the middle. Thank you so much.